Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast, everyone, and wanted to welcome to the second part of our series called Relationships and Rivalries, two of my colleagues here to discuss the relationship between China and North Korea. We have with us the newly minted director of the Korea Center at the Wilson Center, Sue Terry, and we also have our old friend Robert Daly, who is the director of the Kissinger Institute at the Wilson Center. Robert and Sue, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good to be back. All right. Whenever we talk about North Korea, I guess you know everybody's blood pressure could tend to go up a little bit because we never really quite know what's going on. Uh, but fortunately, at the Wilson Center, we really do have a clear-eyed view, I think, of uh, how these relationships work. Um, Sue, I want to start with you. I guess help us understand... When it comes to the relationship between China and North Korea, we often have, in the American perspective, we see two communist countries. And therefore, maybe they're allies, maybe they're working together. Uh, maybe China should be able to insert, uh, exert some influence over North Korea because they have similar ideologies. What do you think about that kind of approach to dealing with North Korean policy? Well, it's understandable that we think China would have some sort of influence over North Korea because China is the most important relationship uh, for North Korea. It's the most important country for North Korea. Uh, China is North Korea's main and the only remaining patron left in the world. China is North Korea's important ally, biggest trading partner, key source of food, arms, fuel, uh, some 80% of North Korea's consumer goods, 45% of its food, 90% of its energy imports all come from China, right? So I know North Korean trade accounts for nearly 90% of North Korea's global trade. So it's understandable for one to think that if China were to cut everything off, you know, the food, fuel, all of that, then North Korea would listen to China. So the U.S. Uh, kept thinking this and, and kept thinking, okay, if, we, if China kept pressure on North Korea, on the Kim Jong-un regime, that somehow, you know, they can influence uh, their behavior. And this has been a long-standing thinking uh, from Washington's perspective for many, many years. But I'd say that we haven't really seen China really do as much as the United States would like China to do. Robert, from the other side of this, with, with uh, China's perspective, why isn't China taking a rougher stance with North Korea? Well, China's interests on the Korean Peninsula and vis-a-vis -vis North Korea don't align perfectly with those of the United States. In fact, I would say that their interests are more closely aligned with Pyongyang's than with Washington. Uh, I think that China would prefer to have a denuclearized uh, Korean Peninsula, but more important to China is to have a de-Americanized Korean Peninsula. 
and it continues to want uh, North Korea as a buffer uh, between the S South Korea, an American ally, and itself. And so it has a much narrower set of interests with North Korea, and it retains uh, the special relationship that Sue talked about. It goes very, very deep. Uh, Kim Il-sung grew up in part in Manchuria, uh, which was then loosely part of China. He then later, as a young man, joined the Chinese Communist Party, was trained by a new, the revolutionary generation. And then, of course, that, that bond was sealed uh, during the Korean War with this idea that, as China likes to say, Korea and China are as close as lips and teeth. Now, that's actually not true. There are a lot of problems in the relationship. But that phrase about how close these two countries are and the story of their joint victory over the United States, as China tells that story, that's actually really important uh, to the legitimacy of the Communist Party. It's, it's a big part of their founding myth. And so we shouldn't underestimate uh, the, import, the symbolic importance of this relationship to China, even though there are many aspects of the North Korean regime that China doesn't like. China, among other things, uh, sees the North Koreans as ingrates who don't give China uh, the credit that it deserves for saving their bacon uh, during the Korean War. In fact, the, the number one film in China this year, I think it's Global Box Office is number one, uh, is a Chinese film about the Battle of Chosin Reservoir. It's basically a Kill the Americans movie about uh, the Chinese army beating the Americans and saving North Korea. But this isn't widely acknowledged in North Korea itself. Uh, none, nobody in the Kim dynasty has been as fully compliant with Chinese wishes as China would like. And they also continue to have disagreements about things like uh, the status of what the Chinese call Gaogoli or Goguryeo in Korea. Uh, there's disagreement about which territories are part of China's civilization as opposed to Korea's sacred civilization. So China has a lot of reservations about North Korea, but it's far more aligned with North Korean views, even about denuclearization, in my view, than it is those of the United States. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, so historically, of course, China supports supporting North Korea unconditionally almost uh, because they do want to sustain the Kim dynasty because they do want to ensure, you know, friendly nation on, on its border, as Robert said. Um, and so their top priority has always been avoiding instability. It's not that they don't care about denuclearization, they do. Yeah. It's just that they care more about avoiding regime instability that will lead to regime collapse. And then they will lead to influx of North Korean refugees in China and so on. So that's, our priority has been different. But as he pointed out, what I think is interesting though, is that it's still changing. China, North Korea relationship is changing. Uh, uh, Robert just talked about this very special relationship close as lips and teeth, sealed in blood. You know, Mao lost his son in the Korean War. Um, but I would say that it still has evolved. Their priority of wanting stability, that has not changed. But there are still uh, dif uh, differences and difficulties. Uh, I think Xi Jinping was very unhappy with Kim Jong-un um, since he came into power, a whole host of reasons besides the nuclear test and missile test. Uh, they were very unhappy when uh, Kim Jong-un assassinated Chang Song-tek, right? The second most powerful man in North Korea, his uncle, who was a liaison with the Chinese. They were unhappy when Kim Jong-un assassinated his brother, half-brother Kim Jong-nam, um, who was under the protection of uh, China. Uh, but 
you know, so it's, it's, if their relationship is very close, but it has changed. And the only reason why Xi Jinping met with Kim Jong-un was after President Trump decided to meet with him. Uh, and the whole summitry began in, in 2018. Until then, Xi Jinping didn't even meet with Kim Jong-un. So I would just point out that relationships still, there, there are some changes. It's a little bit more dynamic than as, you know, even though they are still very, very close. I think about the reliance that North Korea has on China and would think, doesn't that go against this whole self-sufficient ideology that North Korea's regime is supposed to be based on? It seems like it would be kind of like be the college student who's frustrated that they're old enough and should be able to be self-sufficient, but yet need to rely on their parents for things, right? It, it almost seems like there would be a resentment there with North Korea having to rely so much on China. What, does that create a different dynamic for them? No, it's, that's absolutely right. I think it's a complicated relationship because you're referring to, of course, Kim Il-sung's Juche ideology of so-called self-reliance and want to pursue an independent course, but they were for a very long time reliant first uh, Soviet Union and China, and then after the fall of the Soviet Union, now China. And as I mentioned, you know, if it's 90% of your trade, the worldwide trade is with China and you have to be reliant on it, um, they don't like that. North Koreans don't like that. So on one hand, they're very close and they're reliant on China. On the other hand, they're resentful of that fact. So it's, it's a complicated relationship. And then I mentioned to you, even China, it's not like Chinese were so happy with Kim Jong-un and all these nuclear missile tests and everything else that went on since, you know, for, for a number of years. But it's, it is what it is. And I still think China's overall priority of wanting to avoid instability, that still trumps everything else, including denuclearization of North Korea. I agree with Sue. An another factor that has come into play over the past few decades is that China's relationship with South Korea has changed a great deal. And there's simply no avoiding the comparison between the two Koreas if you're an ordinary Chinese citizen. They look at you know, major uh, technology companies, for example, from South Korea. South Korea is the single biggest source of undergraduates in Chinese universities, so they know each other. Uh, China's soft power, uh, South Korea's soft power in China is just tremendous, you know, and it's not just you get BTS and Blackpink and the whole K-pop phenomenon, but also Korean dramas, Korean music, uh, very much Korean ideals of beauty drive things like Chinese cosmetic surgery. Uh, and so China, the Chinese people see this growing power, you know, the Squid Game, which you can't see legally in China, but people are watching, uh, the success of a movie like Parasite. And despite this very important central narrative about China standing with North Korea in the Korean War, when you look at the North and South, it's not hard for Chinese to do the math. And so there is, I think, you know, this new factor that China has some historical brotherly feelings toward North Korea, but it also has considerable disdain for North Korea, uh, for its lack of success, just as it has disdain for Russia in a different way and for India in another way. And of course, the North Koreans are not insensitive to that. So that's a secondary consideration. The primary consideration, I think, is exactly what Sue said. It, it's about stability. But the framing of this for Chinese both popularly as well as at the leadership levels, does involve the outside world as well, and South Korea in particular. 
I want to ask about the historical window here, because when we're, when we're talking like an American policy, I mean, America's 245 years old. We have a pretty narrow historical window, whereas in Asia, these civilizations are thousands of years old with histories and memories that go back uh, with that. Is there any dynamic historically going beyond the Korean War, of course, going back further that either brings together or tends to push apart these two countries? Well, I would say that, first of all, you know, the Korean Peninsula was the greatest of the tributary nation uh, towards China, right? They had a very um, sort of a close, it's interesting, particularly when you compare the Korean Peninsula's relationship with Japan, where it was a it's more of a benign neglect kind of relationship with China and the Korean Peninsula. But yeah, their relationship goes back thousands of years. And in, on some level, uh, you know, the, when they say Korea is the best tributary country towards China because they were sort of left alone, but they were able to sort of have this coexisting relationship. And of course, a lot of China's culture and everything else went to, it just it originated from China to Korea and then to Japan. And it, it's really particularly interesting when you compare the Korean Peninsula's relationship with Japan, which is always seen as much more of with fear and with more of even hatred than Korea's, the way Koreans view the Chinese and China is a little bit different. Um, you know, Koreans still talk about Hideyoshi's invasion of, of the Korean Peninsula in 1592 and 1597, but there's a less of that kind of a, uh, imagery when it comes to China. So that's kind of an interesting, it's just an ex interesting example when you're, when you're particularly comparing it to Japan. But there's some of that still vis-a-vis -vis China, right? Because, you know, China sees itself in many ways correctly as the source of civilization itself for Korea and Japan, and for that matter, uh, for Vietnam. And Korea was, for long periods of time, not just a, a trading partner or tributary of China, but really what's called a suzerainty of, of China. It was had a relationship from China's point of view uh, there's no good, perfect analogy on this, but rather like, say, Puerto Rico's to the United States now, it was well within China's sway, as was Okinawa. And this is something even now that can cause some resentment and nervousness in Pyongyang as well as in Seoul. I know that before the failure of the Trump outreach, there was some concern in China that North Korea might even flip right? Uh, th that the resentment, some of the resentments about China and the fears about China's desire to make the whole Korean peninsula once again a suzerainty could push uh, the Kim regime toward Trump. Now, this was, this was overwrought. This was overblown. But those questions are still out there. And North and South Korea have in common this wariness about China's ultimate intentions. And it does show up in, in issues like resentment over China claiming uh, that parts of what are now Manchuria, parts of what Korea claims as part as one of its ancient uh, kingdoms were always Chinese. And so it's not just a story about lips and teeth. Korea has always called itself a, sh a shrimp among whales. China's one of the whales, right? Uh, Japan's another. Uh, so I, it's, I think, a conflicted friendship at best. 
It's really interesting what you say about um, North Korea flipping the fear of particularly, you know, during the whole Trump, Kim, bromance period. Uh, that is true. And this is why I said when Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping has not met with Kim Jong-un since he came into power mm-hmm. since 2011 and then only decided to meet with him after Trump and Kim. Uh, it looked like they were going to meet each other and Xi Jinping did not want to be sidelined. They wanted to make sure uh, that, you know, there's no chance that North Korea would actually flip. Uh, and, and that's when the whole, all, all of that submetry began. And now, of course, Xi Jinping met with Kim Jong-un four times. And then your whole point about complicated relationship is true. It is very complicated. Even in South Korea, you mentioned China's relationship with South Korea right now. Uh, China is also not only North Korea's largest trading partner, but South Korea's largest trading partner, right? The trade volume between China and South Korea is double that of South Korea and US and South Korea and Japan combined. Um, Yet, even though they have that close trading, that relationship, um, there's also right now, you know, sort of the public perception in South Korea that's weary of China. Um, and everything stemmed from historical and territorial disputes, historical dispute that he mentioned on over Goguryeo, to yellow dust and other pollutants originating from China, the Koreans are unhappy about. They're arguing over everything, even over kimchi, uh, and, and you know, the origination of kimchi. It's a, so it's a very complicated uh, feeling and, and it's, it's a complex relationship, not only between China and North Korea, but also China and South Korea. How did that kimchi argument get started? I think basically it started with Chinese media uh, sort of saying, listing kimchi as one of, you know, it's a, it's one of those fermented vegetable that originated from China. Um, and it's, and it, Koreans interpreted as that inc- the fermented vegetables, including kimchi. Uh, and then, of course, the Koreans, you know, the South Koreans went in an uproar. Anything that has to do with kimchi and anybody trying to take claim for kimchi, the Koreans will flip over, uh, uh, flip out about. So they did. Uh, and the Koreans were also upset over, of course, the defining moment was over the THAAD crisis when China boycotted South Korea, South Korean goods. OK, we, we kept saying, hey, China, you're boycotting the wrong country. Uh, we're talking about you should boycott North Korea, not South Korea. But when they sanctioned South Korea uh, for because of over the THAAD deployment, the missile defense, uh, missile battery deployment in 2016, uh, that was sort of a turning point between South Korea China relationship. I want to go back to that relationship with China and North Korea, and as we've seen it recently, and what their goals are. And Robert was talking about how much. China really, they don't want to see regime collapse. They really just want to see some stability there. Sue, you named off a whole lot of statistics of of how much reliance there is between North Korea to the Chinese. It makes me ask the question, really, are the the Chinese in too deep with North Korea? That That they've kind of put themselves in a situation where they can't, really exercise much leverage because they don't want to see this regime collapse. They don't want to have a refugee problem, but they also don't want to have like all of this that they have been supporting the the North Koreans recently just go to waste, right? Are they in too deep? So what's really interesting is, yes, I, I think they are in too deep, but what we did see very interestingly in 2017 
was that China for the first time was actually really implementing sanctions, which was a surprise to a lot of Korea watchers, right? By late 2017, China did agree to nine major United Nations Security Council resolutions that banned some 90% of North Korea's most lucrative exports, right? That includes coal and iron ore and seafood and textiles and so on. And we can talk about why that is. Was that because of Trump's uh, final theory rhetoric that, you know, the whole, that phrase, no war, no instability, no nukes, and in that order from China's perspective. So they thought we're actually might be, Trump might take, uh, might go to war uh, over North Korea, that whatever the reason was, we actually saw China, Beijing doing more in 2017 than ever before after years of dragging its feet. So I do think that their priority of wanting stability on the Korean Peninsula, again, trumps everything else. But there was still an interesting period. So that does make me think that uh, at times that they are willing to put pressure, uh, but only when, if they feel like if there's going to be an imminent conflict or some other thing that's happening on the Korean Peninsula that matters to them. Um, and I think too, honestly, but right now, we, we have moved on since from 2017 because of that shift to symmetry and diplomacy. And now where we are, particularly between US and China relationship, I think now we, we can't realistically think that China is going to help us out or actually implement sanctions or, or pressure North Korea. We had that moment perhaps in 2017, but now that moment has passed. And, and even in 2017, while China was willing to sanction North Korea, they also managed to reframe, I think, the whole North Korean question in a way that worked for them. The prior framing had been the six-party talks. You know, Korea was taking actions which were in violation of international law, of UN sanctions, and this was a worldwide regional project that the six parties, preferably led by Beijing in China, would address. But in the last go-round between Trump and Xi Jinping, China positioned itself uh, as the adult in the room standing aside and reframed this as a problem between the United States and North Korea, the squabbling children with China as a more adult referee. And it, it succeeded in doing this. And so that the focus was more on this Trump-Kim relationship and on their inability to get it together, rather than uh, the, the focus was not on Korea's illegal actions. And that actually worked, for, I think I would say for, for North Korea and for China, but it was a new approach that, that, that China took. At, and I think it's also a, a quite disingenuous. It works well for China, but it's a disingenuous approach. The next, you know, next time there's a real go around and you know, Korea is, is firing some missiles now, uh, but of course China is also firing missiles that we're even more worried about. So Kim is having a hard time getting attention. But the question really is going to be whenever we next have you know, a strong international focus on North Korea, whenever he gets our attention again, what will the fundamentally changed U.S.-China relationship, a relationship that is now not just competitive, but contentious, adversarial, what is that framing going to mean for the next crisis on the Korean peninsula, I think, is a, is a new question and a big question. Well, I'm not too optimistic that uh, Beijing is going to be helpful. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't all that helpful for many decades, and I think they are going to be extra unhelpful uh, in terms of pressuring North Korea. You know, and so it's it, I'm not optimistic on that front. I'm sure you're correct. So the 
the difficult position that we're in is that China is not going to help us. Its interests align more closely with Pyongyang's than with Washington. At the same time, there can be no solution that is really workable unless Beijing is ultimately on board with it. So how do you, how do you thread those needles? Now, I mean, to date, speaking of final solutions that, that work in North Korea has, has been purest fantasy, and I guess it remains fantasy for now. But again, they, they won't help us, but China also can't be left out and ignored. So it's a huge challenge for our diplomacy. Well, that leads, I think, to the, the, the final wrap-up question here. Beijing has to be involved. Uh, and I, I, part of the reason why we're doing this series is for us as U.S. policymakers on, on our side to understand going forward, if things happened where, you know, we were led to a, a war situation in the Pacific, uh, where, you know, we, we had talk of war in 2017 and some people took that seriously. Uh, you know, there's always South China Sea churning uh, situations there, too. What does a policymaker need to know if this area was to ever become a conflict zone or things were to get more to, to, to heat up there? What does a policymaker need to know about this relationship to really understand and kind of encapsulate what to watch out for? Well, you know, in some ways, the question relative to North Korea is the same as the question relative to pandemics or global warming. We know that for any of these issues, China has to play a role. Uh, but we're conducting our diplomacy with China right now, such that it's almost impossible to cooperate. Uh, they've made very clear that they're not willing to work with us on global warming uh, as long as we are attacking them over how they treat the Uyghurs uh, and Hong Kong and their threats uh, to Taiwan. You know, they are not willing to cooperate with us uh, to try to prevent the next global pandemic as long as we are asking them about the origins of the current global pandemic. So we have to find some way in all of these areas, including um, in the Korean Peninsula, to start working with China now without betraying what we see as a values-based diplomacy. And so we, we can't wait until Kim decides that he wants to cause another crisis. That puts all the power in his hands. We should be working on this now, but that's going to cause us to reconsider our fundamental approach to China. And so far, we, we haven't found a way to do that, given our, our very legitimate geostrategic concerns about China. So I, I realize that's not a very helpful answer. All I want to suggest is that the Korea peace cannot be treated separately from the, all of these other issues. And that's, I think, always been a problem with our approach to the South China Sea or the Diyu Senkakus or North Korea, is that we treat all of these issues as distinct problem sets, whereas China has always treated them as one aspect of a larger question of balance of power. Uh, and we need to start doing the same and to take a longer term approach and we haven't begun to do that yet. I'm, you know, somewhat pessimistic because we've been dealing with this issue for many decades and the U.S. policymakers keep thinking that we need to sort of, maybe China is a solution to North Korean issue, North Korean problem. The problem is, um, we just talked about this whole show, um, how this whole podcast, how China's interest is not 
it's it's different because they want they want regime stability. So I'm afraid that even if in the face of another round of provocations from North Korea, China's response is going to be more of the same. I mean, it's unrealistic for us to expect that their response is going to be different. Um, I don't think they will fully enforce sanctions uh, for the fear of destabilizing the Kim regime. Um, they're just going to seek incremental changes, uh, always working to prevent regime collapse. Um, so, you know, though maybe, I, I don't know what the solution is, but I, you know, we have to find, is there any event that can fundamentally threaten China's national interest enough to fo force it to fundamentally alter its, the way it acts with North Korea? Right now, I think there's little evidence that anything short of conflict uh, with North Korea would really alter Beijing's calculation. So I don't know what the answer is. I know that it's no amount of lecturing from Washington that will cause China to do anything that's going different, uh, to behave differently. Um, and so I don't have a, a you know, satisfying answer to this dilemma, but I, I emphasize that China's interest is fundamentally stability over denuclearization. And I don't know how we can work around this problem. I think that is exactly why a place like the Wilson Center exists, right? Because we are here to help policymakers see with clear eyes in a nonpartisan way what the situation is. And I think in this situation, uh, China's got its national interests. North Korea's got its national interests. And we have ours. And they don't always line up. And I think that it is policymakers really need to understand what the dynamic is right now, they can't, you know, no amount of wishful thinking or, or lecturing, as Sue has, has already said, is going to change those things. So it's up to U.S. policymakers to take this kind of information and figure out how that fits in with U.S. policy. So I think uh, this is a good conversation here to understand where this relationship sits right now. We have to have a clear-eyed understanding of it. Sue Terry and Robert Daly, really appreciate you joining me today for this Relationships and Rivalries series on the Need to Know podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, we will be back with another in our series. We will be talking on bilateral relationships around the world. So stay tuned to the Need to Know podcast and catch up with us quick on our past episodes. You can see all of our episodes on wilsoncenter.org slash podcasts.